Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. If you are relatively new to the podcast, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And if you're a faithful listener, thanks for taking time each week to listen to these episodes. I hope you've been enjoying the interviews over the last few weeks. I know they've been great for me, and I hope they are the same for you. This week, I interview my friend and colleague, David Rice. David is a pastor, practical theologian. He's a former cheesemonger, a chef, gardener, father, husband, and much more. David is one of those guys, when he speaks, you listen. We were a part of a two-year cohort program for spiritual transformation, and during this time, he spoke so many truths that I needed to hear. I've kept a journal for years, and there are a bunch of quotes from David in my journal from this time. Uh, Under one quote in the journal, I have written, another truth bomb from David. And David speaks a lot of truth bombs. I'm so thankful for the ways he has spoken into my life, and he may not even know the impact of his words and encouragements and the truth bombs that they have had on my life and my soul. In our conversation today, we talk about spiritual formation, church, and cheese. Yeah, cheese. My guess is you didn't expect to go there on this one. You can learn more about David on his website, davidwilliamrice.com, and there are links in the show notes to that, as well as his social media accounts if you want to learn more about him. Before we get to the interview, I want to share a quick message from my son, Foster. Rate and view this podcast on iTunes. As always, this podcast is written, recorded, and edited on Monacan land. And with that, here's my interview with David Rice. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nathan. Good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, of course. I'm excited you're here. Tell our listeners a little bit who you are uh, professionally. What have you done professionally? Tell us a little bit about yourself personally as well as an introduction. Yeah, sure. So um, personally, I'm a husband and a father. been married uh, to Wendy for 16 years. We have two little boys that are 11 and 8 years old. And um, we we love being at home and being together. Um Years ago, my wife, Wendy, decided she wanted to homeschool our children, which, to be honest, was not something I was thrilled about when she first brought up, um, because I knew a lot of homeschool kids growing up, and I just wasn't thrilled about it. But she has proven that she is um, passionate about it, and not that she needed to prove that to me, but uh, it's been a great environment for our kids so far. So so we're at home a lot. Uh, we read a ton of books together. That's one of the main things we do together. And professionally, uh, I am a pastor and a practical theologian, and I have been serving a small church in rural northern Michigan for about six years now as a lead pastor. So we are we're in a kind of a rural resort community. So in Michigan, if you live in Michigan, 
most people live what we could say we say downstate people live downstate like in detroit and grand rapids and lansing and then on weekends like holiday weekends uh or during the summer people go up north that's what we say so where i live is in one of those up north spaces so for instance in the county i live in something like four times the amount of people will show up on a holiday weekend um, compared to who's normally here. Because uh, we have a lot of, we have two big lakes, so people come and live on the lakes and have cottages on the lakes, and there's rivers. So our place really informs a lot of the context and informs how we do ministry. Um, so we're we're small. Um, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, a fairly insignificant church, but um, we try to do a lot of significant work with people in the, the spaces of spiritual formation and uh, I think some days the way that I see my role as a pastor is um, I'm inviting church people to actually follow Jesus, um, which is just something I'm very aware of first and foremost for myself as a church professional, like a professional Christian, which is like the weirdest thing in the world to say, but in some ways that's what it is. Um, yeah, inviting folks that have... Um, years and years of church experience to sort of follow Jesus outside of the church into the community. Uh, so that that's a bit about who we are and what we do. I love to cook. I love to garden and fly fish and ride my bike. So you, yeah. And you haven't always been a pastor, though. No, not How at all. How did you kind of wander into this world? Yeah, so I think toward the end of my high school years, I knew it's something I wanted to do. I don't have any sort of like dramatic kind of calling experience, but when I was a senior in high school, I that was the beginning for, through a series of events, the beginning of my time being really frustrated with the local church and it's sort of insular nature, inward focus, kind of circling the wagons nature that was becoming more and more apparent to me as, you know, sort of a passionate, opinionated 17-year-old. And um, in my uh, small town that I grew up in, um, we didn't have a student uh, ministry or student ministry person leading any of that at the time, by the time I became a senior. And I was sort of making some noise about it in my church, and unbeknownst to me, apparently, the story I was told is that at a board meeting, they talked about this, and they decided that I should be the youth pastor. Um and then we had a Sunday school teacher, and he let me know that, like, hey, at that board meeting, they decided you should be in charge. And I was just kind of like, what are you talking about? I mean, who does that? <laughs> and now as a pastor that, like, has a, has a board, you know, I have an elder team and, and all that, and we struggle to maintain a youth ministry, I'm just like, what in the world was that meeting like? Um, let's just put the kids in charge. <laughs> Oh my gosh. But what that forced me to do was to, uh, I think in some ways, take my call to Christianity, just my faith in general, much more seriously than I ever had before. Kind of like, oh, I guess I should learn how to pray. I'm not sure I know how to do that. Or I guess I should actually read the Bible if I'm going to talk about the Bible. Um, and so that was the beginning for me. Um beginning to take kind of a call to ministry seriously. And then from there, uh, you know, college and um, after college, I worked in worked in a, a big megachurch for a few years and also uh, was a substitute teacher in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, 
in an urban context. And then uh, after that, through grad school, through seminary, I worked in kitchens as a, as a cook and a chef and a recipe developer and did that for a number of years before I became a pastor. So I enjoy being in the kitchen still. I really love cooking. And um, yeah. What's been the most life-giving thing for you in your profession as a professional Christian pastor right now? <laughs> yeah. Um, the most life-giving thing. Well, when we record this, we're still very much in the throes of the season of COVID, COVID tide. Um, honestly, one of the more life-giving things for me has been having some really difficult conversations with folks in my church that are very much caught up in what I would say are kind of fringe political elements surrounding COVID and this pandemic and being able to kind of cash in on some of the relational capital that I've built with them over the years uh, to say things like, you know, God has been at work in the world far before America came along. And so what God is doing in the world is not the United States of America. Um, what God is doing in the world is, is bigger than any nation state or people. And um, yeah, so God's activity in the world has a long history. It doesn't involve establishing a country like the United States of America. God can certainly work through the people or even the government of a country, but um, yeah, having some, I would say these kind of like undoing conversations with folks that are um, gentle and loving, but also direct, uh, just to remind folks that um, when Jesus calls us to follow the way of Jesus, it really is a call out of our allegiance to a particular country or people or tribe and into an allegiance to God's kingdom. And I think that in the, the American church in particular, that's a really hefty invitation. That's a really difficult call for people uh, to step into and submit to. And so, of course, we've created systems and denominations that have nothing to do with that call and, and way too often have a lot to do with just kind of solidifying our socioeconomic political standing in the culture. But another story for another day. Yeah. Um, we could do a whole podcast yeah. on that, right? Yeah. Right. Um, we met in a cohort program for leaders and organizational leaders, ministers, um, where we hung out at a monastery and around a lake and spent a lot of time in solitude and silence and contemplative practices. Um, and for me as an evangelical, well, kind of a theological mutt, that process was incredible as it kind of brought me out of a season of burnout, brought me to discover how to be with God rather than to do things for God. So I'd love to hear for you, how was that experience of discovering some of these contemplative practices and how did that kind of either deconstruct some of your faith and then as well as rekindled your faith? Yeah, that's a really great question. So when I was um, 25 or 26, we moved to Seattle. We, we didn't have kids yet. And I started a graduate program, Master of Divinity program at a school called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. 
for me, that, uh, that I started that program in 2006, that was the beginning of some pretty intense, I would say, theological deconstruction for me. And so I was in that program for four years. Uh, it, has a, it had a, a really large kind of interpersonal um, psychological bent to it. So I did a lot of family of origin work and a lot of personal story work. And it was a really tumultuous time, I think, in our marriage and in our lives in general, just sort of beginning to kind of open up, open doors or sort of turn pages to places that we didn't know we needed to go, that I didn't know I needed to go, things I needed to address. Um, so for instance, like lingering frustrations around different decisions that my dad made when I was a kid that, that were always sort of communicated to us as a family is God is calling us to do this. And, you know, 30 years later, I, I not only wonder if God was calling us as a family to do that or to move across the country or the things that we did. I, I think I just wonder how much of that was my dad's need to be approved and liked and wanted in a professional position. Um, maybe it was a mixture of both. I'm, I'm just not even sure. But the deconstruction piece for me happened, began to happen there. And, and it was welcomed, and it was something I was interested in. What, what that graduate program didn't do very well for me was the reconstruction piece. And for, for me, I, we, we left Seattle about six years after we moved there. We moved back to the Midwest, and I started to work for a large church that had sort of a deconstructive culture. And um, it, it wasn't until I was doing work there in adult spiritual formation where I began to really begin to reconstruct things in earnest. And so by the time I, I was um, started the current role that I'm in here, uh, this church that I'm at, it's, it's 114 years old. Um, it's been in the same community for, for that long. Uh, it has a really long and vibrant history in the community. I was 32 when I came, and when I came... I was following after a pastor that had been in this role for 33 years. So he retired on Easter Sunday in 2014. I think my first day in the office was like two weeks later. And I had never been kind of the lead or senior pastor of a church. I was full of a lot of ideas. I was very eager to prove myself. I had a lot of ambition, you know, sort of like seminary ready, you know, um, but I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and it took me about just under a year to really begin to realize that I was I had stepped into a church that was really grieving the loss of a really long pastor, a long pastorate, someone who was pretty well liked in the church and in the community, who had done a lot of great things in the broader community, started the local chapter of Habitat for Humanity and built low-income housing for seniors and did all these all these things. And so I worked for a couple of years really doing my best to kind of lead change in the culture of this church, kind of undo some of the things that had maybe been really helpful through the 90s and early aughts, but by 2014 had become unhelpful. And I think after two or three years of doing that, I had really exhausted myself um, kind of out of ideas. And I think I was already beginning to burn out. And that's when I discovered the cohort you mentioned, the Transforming Center and the Transforming Community cohort that we were part of. And so in some ways, I signed up for that because I, 
I didn't know what else to do. And I didn't know how to lead what I was trying to lead. I didn't know how to sustain myself in pastoral ministry. I was feeling very depleted and very lost and very tired. And so doing that cohort for a couple of years, you know, looking forward every few months to getting away and going to the to um, suburban Chicago where we were um, at that monastery, uh, man, those were so life-giving for me. Um, to be, and it, I think it really helped me reconstruct a version of Christianity that was both new and exciting, but also historic and holistic. You know, it, it was new to me because it was so old, and and that's that's what was enlivening to me. I was sort of tired of the new ideas, um, you know, church strategy and vision and all that stuff. And that stuff is helpful, like organizational management, change management is definitely helpful and useful to a certain extent in church circles. Um, but it's just not, it's not all that there is. There is a mysterious formational component that is usually old and, um, yeah, just much older than our traditions that needs to go, in my view, needs to go hand in hand with any kind of kind of organizational leadership stuff. Um, the two work in tandem much better than one on their own. So, so being in that cohort, I mean, the way I would say it now is in some ways it kind of saved my life. I, I didn't know what else to do. And, and I think it also started kind of an undoing for me as far as pastoral ministry and what it means to be faithful mm. in, uh, as a pastor. Yeah. That was a long answer to your question. There you go. That's all right. It was it was full of wisdom and truth bombs, as you always <laughs> as I always say to you. Truth David bombs. is he drops truth bombs in my life many, many <laughs> times. But I had a similar experience there. You know, the being in the evangelical world, I was a part of hip churches, right? And I felt in that time I discovered that so many of the churches that I was a part of in their quest to be relevant stripped the church of all the ancient things that actually made them relevant. And it was a rediscovering of some of these practices. Yeah, maybe I heard of or some book I read about, but it was different because I was actually doing these practices. Um, you know, that, that were, I mean, in some ways they were out of my control. Like I, I love sitting when we did every morning at whatever, 7 a.m. for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, that centering prayer, we were in this small little chapel on like the second floor or third floor of the monastery. And all of us were just jammed in there and we just sat in silence for 20 minutes. But it had this profound way of centering our day, centering me, making me kind of just in the mood for what was going to happen that day becoming attentive to where I might find God or see God in my day. And that was just a really beautiful thing. And the churches I was a part of, we never had silence. Like the, the moment of silence were like 10 seconds and it was so awkward. We all just coughed through it. <laughs> yeah. Silent, especially programmatically, silence is seen as an enemy, like almost you don't want to make people uncomfortable with silence. So you always have to fill silence with a transition, which programmatically I get like we, I put together, you know, um, transitions and production notes each week for what we do in our, in our church. I mean, I get it. 
But I think that there is a formational component to inviting people into those spaces of discomfort and just wonder, like being more curious around why are we so uncomfortable with silence? Um, I do think that for most uh, Christian discipleship, like inviting folks to be curious around the places where they're uncomfortable. So with silence, for instance, those are, those are great places to begin to grow spiritually. Um, and, and, you know, obviously in our culture where there's dings and notifications and interruptions around everything, um, you know, being intentional about cultivating a life where you are not interrupted and where things can be quiet. Um, I think that, that that's such a formational kind of posture to have in the world. So oh, what were some of the practices for you that drew you into uncomfortability, but were great for your formation, whether it was through transforming center or just in your years as, as a, as yeah. a minister? Um, three come to mind. Uh, the first is the most uncomfortable and it is the solitude and silence one. I still, I very rarely, uh, when I practice this, sit down and look forward to it. And I think I was, I was actually teaching on this a little bit to our church a few weeks ago. I think one of the reasons is so often when I practice solitude and silence, it really changes very little. Like I don't have big epiphanies, Nothing magical happens. I might not even feel all that different at the end. And it leads me, there's sort of this wondering of like, does this even matter? <laughs> like, am, like <laughs> am I just kind of kidding myself? Um, yeah. I think that's some of my suspicions sometimes. But, um, you know, in, in the sense of it's a discipline, uh, you know, these, these disciplines uh, form habits and these habits over time. Uh, they begin to shape us and change us. So even, you know, the thing the thing that I practice is in the morning before my kids are awake, I take my phone and I set a 10-minute timer and I sit in a blue chair in the corner of my living room. And that's, that's it. Um, and I'm attentive to God. The second practice that plays into that for me is breath prayer. This one wasn't particularly uncomfortable. It was really life-giving. Um, but I know in our cohort, we were invited to write a very kind of personalized breath prayer f that, that we believed we were hearing from the Holy Spirit, um, which if you're not particularly Trinitarian, um, things like that, I think, make folks really uncomfortable. But uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, Ruth invited us, Ruth, who was a cohort leader, invited us to kind of pay attention to how God's Spirit might be giving us a breath prayer. And a breath prayer is simply a prayer that you uh, can pray as you breathe in and breathe out. So it's usually very short, um, you know, things like, um, what's, the, what's the most famous one? I never do the famous one because I always do my personalized one. Uh, the, the Jesus, the Jesus prayer. prayer, yeah, yeah. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on Lord me, Jesus a sinner. Christ, Son yeah. of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah. So you just yeah. you you match that to the cadence of your breathing, and um, yeah. So I love I I mean I love that one, and I often incorporate that into my solitude and silence. What does that What does that do for you as a as a prayer? Like, how does that impact your well being, your spirituality? The prayer that I often pray is the one that that um, you know I I took from God's Spirit during or I received from God's Spirit during that cohort, and it it had to do with um, being fathered. So 
I think four, five, six months after I started in my role here at my church, my dad passed away really suddenly. And I still had, we had a good relationship, but there were still unresolved frustrations I had with him that I didn't know how to address with him. He was 69, um, so he wasn't particularly old. And uh, yeah, it was very, very bizarre, very overwhelming. In that first two years of our church, I was a part of leading like 22 funerals. And so death became like this constant theme in my life during that time. So many people in and around the life of our church died. My dad died. And frankly, it was just, I came to sort of hate funerals for a while. Like just really, I still don't love funerals. <laughs> Some pastors, oddly enough, really love funerals um, for a variety of reasons. But um, yeah, I, I, I really dislike the grief surrounding a funeral and I'm still grieving the loss of my dad. But so my, my uh, breath prayer has to do with, um, uh, I think it, it's, um, Abba, daddy, please father me like an invitation for God to father me. And it's something that uh, my therapist had invited me to consider around what it looks like for God to actually father me in the absence of my earthly father. And when he first brought that up, I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, how does it even work? You know? Um, but so that's been a lot of my personal work in the breath prayer. That has been something that's been, it's helped orient me to, I think the reality that God can father us. Um, the way I talk about it pastorally in our church is that I do believe that many folks have a lot of baggage when it comes to calling God their father for a variety of reasons, right? You know, those are, there's some trauma wrapped up in that for people for sure. And yet I think on the other side of that, and this looks different for all kinds of people, I do believe that God wants to father us in sort of the most helpful, loving sense of that word. Um, so not in a gendered sense, but like in a, in a relational sense, you know? Um, and so that's what that prayer has been for me. The last one, just briefly, honestly, was for me, was spiritual direction. I first encountered spiritual direction I, as a youth pastor, um, probably in like 2005, 2006. And I had got, I had recent, then during my life, I'd gotten into like Lectio Divina and some things like that. And, um, I remember signing up to see a spiritual director at a youth specialties conference, which are these annual conferences for youth pastors. Did you ever go to one of those? They're like these ecumenical, borderline evangelical, but there are certainly mainline folks there, um, uh, kind of national, international youth conferences, uh, usually a few all over the country. I don't even know what they do today, but um, there were several spiritual directors you could sign up to see throughout the time. So I signed up to see. I was trying to discern whether or not... Um, we were being invited to move to Seattle and go to grad school or whatever, you know, whatever next life stage thing. And I remember being really weirded out, like, what is going on here? Who is this guy? And he was just an older United Methodist pastor. And I remember, you know, that was my first encounter with spiritual direction and feeling really seen and really heard and really cared for. Uh, and then during our cohort, uh, I saw a spiritual director each time. It was Rory. 
um, Rory Nolan. He's still my spiritual director. Um, and I still see him uh, to this day every few months. And yeah, just the discipline of like um, signing up to see him every time where we gathered, uh, seeing him at the same time each time. Um, and, you know, now four years later, how he's walked with me through a variety of um, stages of my life. And I anticipate he'll continue to do that. So just having a trusted guide to be able to ask me to consider what God is doing in my life in ways that I can't see on my own and really that have no bearing on that him as a person. Um, that's kind of what spiritual direction has been for me. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. How as a pastor, are you incorporating this and introducing these practices into your congregation or ministry? Because what I found is a lot of these are personal practices, but there is a corporate element to them. And a lot of the churches I've been a part of, we never sat in silence for 10 minutes and listened for God. We never did a breath prayer together. We never did certain, I mean, there's some liturgical practices that we did, but some of these things aren't, you can't do in a church, but you can. So how, as a pastor, are you incorporating these? Yeah, I mean, very carefully. Um, So one of the assumptions I operate under is that my journey is not what people need in my church. You know, what they need is whatever God's inviting them into. Um, So I, I don't assume that what is helpful for me, especially currently, what is currently helpful for me is often not helpful for the people in my church. Um, that's, it's hard for, that's been a hard one for me to, to begin to learn. Um, but I see that more and more over, especially over the last five years. So we have done things, um, in, in some smaller groups with practices like breath prayer and Lectio Divina and solitude and silence And every few, probably a couple times a year, I will bring up these as, I will bring up these disciplines as practices that people, uh, if they want, if they are in a place where they are feeling like their connection to God is sort of dormant and they're not sure what to do, um, to maybe stop some things that they might've done for, you know, a long time in their adult life or in the past, uh, for instance, like reading the Bible through in a year, you know, um, and try some of these other practices. So I, I genuinely think that a lot of spiritual practices, you, you just have to be ready in order to receive them. They can't be forced on you. And so in that sense, they can't be like, like it can't be like a, you know, the, I don't, I don't know karate belt. So I'm speaking out of turn metaphorically here, but I'm like, you know, being the spiritual practice person, that can't be like the black belt of Christianity, you know, and and people below me are like the red and yellow belts. That's just not how it is. Um, People are just in different places and they have different needs. Uh, And I think uh, God invites us into different sort of reflecting and refining different parts, reflecting on and refining uh, different parts of our lives based on what's going on right now. Um, So for instance, if someone in our church is newer to faith, um, I, I will, I don't think at this point I've ever said, um, here's Lectio Divina. Here's, um, a breath prayer, like do this and you'll be all set. Here's solitude and silence. 
you know, for most folks, when that has happened, I say, here's the book of John. Read this um, for the next month. Like, read it every day and begin to pay attention to who Jesus is in this particular gospel, because this is who God is. You know, what God has said is that I'm going to show humanity who I am, and the way that I'm going to do that is by showing people Jesus. And so, yeah, there's different um, different sort of theories around how faith formation works, but I think uh to sort of throw people into the deep end around practices is rarely what folks need right away. So, so we dabble in our church. We've done it. Um, we do more Electio Divina type things with our leaders in different settings. Um, but yeah, I sort of read the room and I'm always kind of discerning how do, how do I help people um, kind of, pay attention to what God is inviting them into next. And I, and I don't assume that what God is inviting them into next is what God is inviting me into next. Yeah. I like that answer. Pay attention to what God is doing because that's very individual. Yeah. But it's also corporate and it, I was actually talking on a previous podcast with Steve Weens and he mentioned how he thinks there's a, a, an ongoing rhythm of kind of a, your faith stalls out or deconstruction, reconstruction, it gets rekindled. Um, and you reminded me of that, as you said, you know, you're invited into some of these practices. I think we use that terminology a lot in the cohort. Like, are we invited? How is God inviting us into these practices? And it seems like that's kind of what you're saying. This, there are these invitations at certain seasons of life for certain practices, and that'll look different depending on where you are. Yeah, it feels, I'm again, this is a limited metaphor, but it, it there's some good connection to, it feels similar to raising kids in that once you feel like you've become a good parent, you're like, I've got this kid figured out at this stage, things are going okay, your kid changes, right? Like, and all of a sudden, like, she doesn't want to eat the food that you're giving for dinner anymore or is not tired at bedtime any longer or whatever. And, and so you're constantly having to change how you parent in order to meet your kid where they are. If you continue to try to use the same parenting tools on your six-year-old as you did with your two-year-old, like it's just going to, everything's going to fall apart even more than it currently is, you know? Um, and so I think as, as our faith grows and develops, there are certain types of formation that just aren't as helpful as they once were. And I think folks need to kind of get to the end of the rope sometimes in order to find the next thing. I love how Richard Rohr talks about formation. He uses these two words, transcend and include, that a lot of uh, maturity spiritually, like spiritual maturity, is not just about rejecting what you've just come from. Like He talks a bit about how um, kind of the most fervent kind of converts are are the ones who have just changed from the last thing. So for instance, if you grew up evangelical and you no longer are there, like you're going to be the most cynical and sort of have the most bruising words um, as you come out of that for that tradition. And Rohr would say that the movement into maturity is when you can transcend where you've come from, but also learn to include it. 
Um, so you're not just rejecting the thing wholesale. You're able to say, okay, I'm not there anymore, but there was goodness there. There were people who loved me and loved God. Um, that is not who I want to be and who I aspire to be anymore, but there were still good things about it. Um, perhaps that's a, that's a limited or a privileged perspective. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm most drawn to kind of people in the Christian life that, that have that kind of posture about them, that they know where they've come from and they're no longer there, but they can also name the goodness about that as well, even if they're simultaneously naming the limitations of it. I'm not nearly as drawn to folks that are just angry and like tear it all down. Um, I know that for a variety of reasons, that's where folks are. Um, but it also, there's a bit of kind of adolescent fervor in that at the same time. Um, so yeah, I think, I think as we grow and mature, again, I could be wrong about this, but I think as we grow and mature, according to Roar, um, we learn to transcend and include, um, kind of where yeah. we've come from. Well, I resonate with that and because I see how that can really heal church communities, right? When there's so much division and I mean, even growing up, I mean, I went through a, I hate Catholics phase. <laughs> I don't even know why. I never went to a Catholic church, but the traditions that I was a part of just reamed out that, that tradition. Um, yet I always found the sacredness and some of the practices of the Catholic church so incredible. And even now, some, most of my favorite authors, spiritual authors, are all Catholics. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, like, <laughs> um, but this idea of some of these practices or traditions, taking them with me have, have made me have a greater love for the Christian church rather than a, my tradition's right, that tradition's wrong. Um, and, and, but to be able to say, yeah, there's flaws in that tradition, but here's the good from it. Um, so I, I, I mean, I resonate with what you're saying, and I resonate with Roar. I mean, I resonate with everything he says <laughs> when I can understand it. Yeah, totally. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember in our in our cohort, uh, Ruth Haley Barton. She would kind of ask this rhetorical question sometimes around, you know, a lot of folks in the room came from some somewhat uh, evangelical traditions, and so she would ask, you know, when something around like if we do we really believe that this tradition, which is what, a hundred, hundred years old, 200 at the most, like that we've sort of come to the pinnacle of Christian faith and practice? Like how arrogant is that? And, and that there are people who have come before us who have figured this out in different ways and learned how to um, express and practice faith. Uh, and we would do well to listen to them. And so that's, um, you know, often when like when you bring up Catholic writers, they're they're working out of a tradition that sure is incredibly messy and storied. Um, but it it's a lot older than uh, than a lot of the kind of Protestant or evangelical traditions that many many of the folks I know are working out of. So there's a lot to learn from other traditions. All right, here's a question for you. You love food and many times at this cohort we would eat a cheese platter. It's true. Well, I wouldn't because I'm vegan, but you I would. I think I saw you sneak some every once in a while. 
Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe I did. Your yeah, weakness. my weakness. <laughs> um, favorite cheese, worst, oh, man. worst That's cheese. Such an unfair question. I'm not a good favorites person. Okay. Um, so there is um, an organization here in the United States called the American Cheese Society. They have an annual gathering. Oh, I so love good. that you know this. American Cheese Society. They have an annual <laughs> gathering. And oh you know how, I don't know if you've ever, if you grew up around this or maybe you've sort of read stories or books where rural kids will like participate in 4-H and like enter cows and chickens and pigs and like apple pie in the, in the county fair, you know, and then it gets awarded. So American Cheese Society or ACS as they're known, um, they do this, but with cheeses each year. So if you're an American artisan cheesemaker, you can enter your cheeses, and then there's all these categories, you know, so um, aged cheeses, uh, blue cheeses, brie-style cheeses, whatever. There's all these categories. Um, and then there's always, like, a best-in-show. So it's like you have categorical winners. Like, this is this cheese was crowned the best blue cheese in, at ACS this past year. It really – often, if it's a small cheesemaker, which a lot of artisan cheese in America is, like one little farm or a little collective of farms – Winning an award at ACS can really help them out because um, it, it kind of puts them on the map and um, nicer restaurants will start to serve their cheese and distribute distributors will want to um, get it out. Anyway, so one of the best in shows of the past several years, I think it's won it a few times, um, is called Pleasant Ridge Reserve. And it is a um, it's kind of an aged, uh, I would say it's almost a cross between um, a, a parmesan and then kind of a gruyere or a comte which is like a french gruyere type cheese but it's handmade you know one herd of cows in wisconsin pleasant ridge reserve google it it is delicious it's just kind of an aged creamy cheese so not like soft creamy just kind of like it's not sharp like a cheddar like an aged cheddar um, it's just kind of aged and lovely and creamy. You can get it at Whole Foods if you're a Whole Foods person. <laughs> um, that's probably been my favorite uh, for a while. Another one would be, um, I'm blanking on the name. I haven't been a cheesemonger for like eight years at this point. So I'm totally, um, you know, off my game. Yeah. But there's this blue. So there's uh, a, a cheese producer in Oregon that are really known for their blue cheeses. Totally blanking on names. Should have done my homework. Um I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask that. I surprised yeah, you. Yeah, I know. Thanks a lot. So they yeah. they take one of their um, entries that always wins awards at ACS. They take a blue cheese. It's about a three or four pound round, which picture like a basketball, but you if you're holding a basketball, you shave off the top and the bottom, and you're kind of left with this disc, theoretically, if the air stayed there. So it's about that big. So they take that. And then they take grape leaves from their vineyard and they soak the grape leaves in brandy and then they wrap the cheese in these brandied soaked grape leaves and, and they let it age out in that for a while. And so what you get is this like really rich, like, you know, explosion in your mouth and your face blue cheese, but with this kind of, I don't know, I think it's brandy. You haven't, I'm questioning all my memories now, but that's a delicious Blue cheese. Um, Rogue River, that's the name of the producer. Also, I'm sure available at Whole Foods on the West Coast. Um, worst cheese? Um, American? Hmm. Although, um, let's be honest, American is delicious on a hamburger. I'm just going right. to say. Just melts, 
It's perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's really, really lovely. But yeah, I'm not even sure you can call that a cheese. It's it like 60% actual milk things and 40% yep. other things. But science. It's it's science. It's science. It may not be cheese. Yeah. It's yeah. very fitting to our culture. <laughs> <laughs> Some cheeses I would say I don't like were the ones that would taste how a zoo smells. Oh yeah. One of one of my boys asked me just a few days ago, uh, something about like, have you ever What's the worst cheese you've ever smelled? And I remember opening, unwrapping different brie's from France. And these would come in like, almost like wheels as big as a tire. Like as big around as a tire. These, I don't know, 15, 20 pound wheels of brie. And there was one we'd get, it was, it was a French brie, I can't remember the name. But I'd unwrap it and it would just smell like urine. Like the ammonia <laughs> was so strong. And there is kind of the second guessing of like, why is this a thing? Yeah. But, um... But once you would let it, you'd let it breathe, and then it was delicious. David, if people want to connect with you and learn more about spiritual formation or learn more about the world of cheese, how can they do that? Yeah, um, so I'm on uh, social media, most places, let's see if I can remember, at, at uh, D-A-W-I-R-I-C-E, um, or my website is davidwilliamrice.com. And I'll link all that in the show notes so people... Yeah, can check it out and talk cheese. Man, I feel like I should change my vocational direction at this point. You got me all riled up about. Cheese. I know. I saw that passion come right out. I mean, you. Mm. I, I surprised you, but I loves me a good cheese board. <laughs> I feel like that was our everyday conversation at every three months at the monastery oh, in the yeah. basement of the monastery, talking cheeses. Yeah, because the last night we were there, every retreat, we'd have a big cheese yep. cheese fest, cheese and cracker there fest. There we go. Lovely. Yeah. Good. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being a part of this. Thanks for your friendship. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Appreciate all that you're doing, Nathan. And so, friends, as you continue on this journey of spiritual formation, and as you wake up to the reality of God in your life, may you have peace, may you have calm, and may you have happiness.